Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dewalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season three, episode four of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And this one is going to be about exits and to slice and dice, exit process, exit valuations, trends in the industry, and a whole lot of other nitty gritty. I'm bringing on two titans of the world of DSOs, Brian Kaleo and Steve Mizrak. This is gonna be a joy for me and I know you're going to get a ton out of the episode. So brew another wonderful cup of that Mila coffee, get your pad and pen ready. This is surely to be a note-taking episode. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. And as I teased in the introduction, I'm joined by two good friends of ours here at Polaris and two heavyweights when it comes to the world of DSOs. From a legal context, you probably all know or have heard of Brian Kaleo. He is the managing partner for the dental DSO group within the Dykema Law Firm, and Steve Mizrak, founding partner of Dorfman, Mizrak & Thaler accounting firm in New Jersey, and they do a tremendous amount of work, not only with our consulting clients, but with a lot of our sell-side advisory clients and larger DSOs as well. Brian, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you here, my friend. Perrin, it's really great to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to a great discussion. And Steve Mizrak, uh, when I say depending on where you are in the world in the introduction, Steve is technically uh, not in the continental United States. He's in Mexico on vacation. So this is full on commitment with his wife staring him down and probably delaying him from enjoying some rest and relaxation on the beach. Steve, thanks a ton for making time for us. Yeah, thanks so much, Perrin. And, you know, I'm so glad to be part of this. And uh, hold on, let me just get one more tequila. Okay, I'm all good. <laughs> let's, let's, start this, let's start this baby going. Let's get that's, going. Yeah, great. Uh, that's right. De depend, depending on how smooth the tequila goes down, we could cover a variety of topics and something we probably ought to do uh, on a happy hour show sometime. Well, guys, 2022 was um, another great year in the world of group dental practices and DSOs. And that's, uh, you can kind of take that from a, a formation standpoint, people building and, and establishing groups, and also from an M&A standpoint, people exiting groups. Um, we, you know, were involved in a number of transactions uh, with both of you and, and saw some really candidly high highs and some successful exits for some of our clients. And, and that was great to see. I'd love to just start, uh, if we can, take a minute to look back on what 22, 2022 was from your lens and maybe get your overall assessment on you know, deal volume. 2021 was a record year globally for M&A. I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again, but 2022 is pretty doggone good in terms of deal volume. You know, maybe your commentary on things like activity, multiples, trends, any key takeaways. Brian, why don't I, I let you take the first swing of the bat on this one? Uh, any thoughts from you on, on the year that was? Yeah, I mean, it was, as you, as you pointed out, it was a very strong year. It was not quite as explosive as 2021. Again, I don't know, like, I agree with you. I don't know if we'll ever quite see the last half of 2020 and 2021. You know, that there was obviously very strong reasons, uh, you know, a once in a generation pandemic, you know, for why when everything ramped back up, those years were just, you know, record, record years. But 2022 was strong. I mean, the first 
quarter got off to a very, very strong start. And then, you know, the Olympics ended and you had this invasion of Ukraine. And I think that took a lot of people by surprise. And then we started as the year got on to hit some inflationary um, conditions that people were not necessarily in- expecting. You know, if you ask people, would we have, you know, record inflation, you know, inflation not seen since the 1990s? If you ask people in January, by September, would we have that type of inflation? They would say absolutely not. But yet we had a war that nobody expected, really. And then we had all these inflationary conditions. So by the end of the year, you had the cost of labor going up. Um, You know, people were having to pay more for in dental organizations for employees than they ever did before. And then you had the interest rates going up. So the borrowing power of credit facilities was diminished. So it ended up, all things considered, being a very strong year, despite you know some of the um, negative surprises that we saw. I will say this, and it is today, it's a tale of sort of two segments of the industry. If you've got three or four million in EBITDA or less, you're still seeing extremely strong interest. Um, and that continued throughout 22. And I know we're going to talk about 23, but that's still continuing sort of now. But I did see... Okay, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I did see in the back half of the year, I saw a billion dollar transaction canceled. I saw a $450 million deal canceled. I saw a $300 million deal canceled. I had a $100 million deal where we were trying to syndicate sort of with the lenders and that got canceled. So, you know, some of the larger transactions that really fuel the overall industry, you know, sort of struggled a little bit. But yet, you know, some people will point out, you know, there were some big, a very large oral surgery platform traded at a very high multiple and endodontic platform traded at a very high multiple. So there were, you know, some deals, certainly big deals that closed in 2022. But what I saw in the last half of the year is the very, very large deals sort of slowed down and struggled. But if you've got three or $4 million of EBITDA or less, there was more interest than ever uh, in those transactions. Yeah, I, I, that's, um, I would concur with that. Now, granted, we are not, uh, we at Polaris are not um, privy or, or engaged in an advisory role for billion-dollar transactions, at least not yet. Well, probably in 2024, right? That's when the hey, strategic Hey, we keep going, Karen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I'd say next year or something, maybe. <laughs> that's right. What's a billion dollars among friends anyway? So, um, but, uh, you know, your your point is very well taken in that three to four to five uh, million-dollar EBITDA range, um, there is uh, a, a, a substantial amount of interest and activity levels um, for platform plays as well as tuck-ins and, and um, you know, acquisitions of, of regional type businesses. And, and even uh, less, Perrin, I should say. I mean, if you're listening to this show and you've got, you know, one million in EBITDA or something, yeah, you'll, you'll be able to get sold without a problem in this market. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there is strong interest all, all the way up and down that, uh, that segment from both strategics and financial buyers. Steve, you do um, a tremendous amount of work with our uh, consulting clients who are building, you know, DSOs, operational DSOs, and go through a, a lot in terms of financial reporting. But one of the aspects that y'all serve is is on quality of earnings and and really validating the the cash flows of businesses through an exit process. And even for Polaris clients prior to entering that exit process. I wonder what your take on on the world is as it relates to what you saw in 2022 um, relative to the work that you guys do. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of what Brian spoke about is, you know, you know, on point, you know, we, we, the big, the big driver in 22, of course, uh, or 20, you know, 22, which was really a carryover from 21 was the tax cut, the tax raise, I should say that never happened, right? You know, everybody was rushing to get deals done in in 21, because everyone thought capital gains rates were going to go up in 20. 22, of course, that never happened. That seems like that's not on the table for the, you know, for the foreseeable future. So as a consequence, you had deals that weren't able to close in 21 that carried into 22 with all that momentum. Uh, we were, you know, participating in a number of them, you know, some of which were your clients, uh, you know, with Polaris and, you know, kind of continued through, you know, most of 22. Um, but, you know, to you know, one of the comments Brian, you know, talked about was the inflationary aspects. And, you know, one of the things that we saw 
uh, amongst all our clients is probably the biggest challenge that they had was recruitment of, uh, of dentists, right? You know, you can't treat patients if you don't have the, the providers. And if you don't have the providers, where are you going to go? And as a consequence, you know, wages went up. Um, and, you know, that kind of maybe, you know, created some opportunities in terms of, you know, generating more income, but also in terms of higher costs. So um, it's going to be interesting. You know, yeah, 22 ended fine. It was good. You know, everything worked out great, you know, especially with the carryover momentum. But, you know, we'll see what's going to happen in 23. One of the things, you know, that, you know, we touched on is that, yeah, that three to four million dollar uh, you know, segment of uh, practices, what you know, is being sold um, and is moving quite well. But you know, when you start looking at the bigger players um, who are having you know credit crunches, you know, the cost of money has doubled. You know, how does that trickle down and then impact everything else? And you know, along with you know the inflationary aspect, and of course, the other thing that we're dealing with, and I know we're kind of maybe moving into twenty three a little as I speak. Um, is, you know, you're seeing, you know, you know, all these major corporations, you know, Microsoft this morning announced that they're cutting 10,000 jobs, banks are cutting Tesla, you know, when, when and if, you know, how long will that be, you know, in terms of these uh, kinds of, you know, reductions in the work staff, well, how will that affect, you know, the world economically, you know, um, at some level, you know, on a large side of the corporations, you're dealing with, you know, invariably when people get laid off, most likely they have a nice package where their insurance is covered for a year. So, you know, we'll have to kind of see where all this shakes out. But yeah, I mean, deal flow was strong, especially in the first half. It was, you know, not as strong as the end of 21, but a lot of carryover and continued momentum. Yeah, I think there are still a number of arrows in terms of consolidation, at least, that point in the right direction. And and hopefully a lot of the uh, uncertainty that we're dealing with right now is is temporary in nature. I mean, I think the Fed's given a, a little bit of guidance or prognostication is probably a better way of talking about it as it relates to the tail end of 23 and into 24 in terms of both rates and inflationary pressures where they'd like to see things end up. And that gives you gives you a little bit of hope uh, for some stability in the economy for sure versus this kind of whipsaw mentality that we're dealing with. Let, let's turn into 23 um, and and talk a little bit about um, you know some of the activity levels that you're seeing presently and maybe a little bit of just forward-looking uh, prognostication for lack of a better term. Um, Q1 is always a, a slower time just because there's so much that happens in Q4 to, to get in under the wire before December 31st. But, you know, take what y'all are seeing, read the tea leaves a little bit. And, and Brian, maybe I'll let you lead on this one as well. What What's uh, Dykema looking at in terms of um, some of the activity levels as we start rolling into 23? You know, I was pleasantly surprised because I, I, I was a little worried. I mean, for all the reasons we're talking about what I saw in the back half of last year, I was a little worried about, you know, what, it, what you know, the first quarter of this year could bring. And I walked around, you know, I've got 58 professionals at work with me and I kind of literally walked around the hallway. I'm so pleased. Uh, just on a side note, parent after COVID, everybody's kind of back in the office so I can walk around and see people. Again. <laughs> but uh, just a little side note. I, I, that made me really happy as I was doing it. But I was walking around talking to folks, or at least we're there Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. All right, I'm never going to get everything, but I, they're, they're going to be there three days now. So anyway, I was walking around the office, and people were busy. I mean, the M&A team was pretty busy. And, you know, what I think it really is, because I've done a lot of, it's my job as the, you know, director to really do the diligence on this and sort of, sort of figure out where everything's going. I've talked to the lenders. I've talked to the big DSOs, the middle market DSOs, the small DSOs. Of course, I've talked to my team. I've talked to people like you at Polaris, and other advisors and things. And what I think you know, sort of is happening is it's a little uneven there. Okay. There are some DSOs that are struggling right now. Uh, there's been one or two that have sort of you know, greatly reduced their business development staff. They're not pursuing transactions. There's been a couple DSOs that um, they got out of ratio with their credit facility. So they're not allowed to really do any MA activity right now. But the demand, here's the thing. 
The demand is so off the charts that even though some DSOs and some organizations are struggling and maybe taking a break for the first or second quarter of um 2023, all that means mostly on the smaller deals is that there's opportunity for other folks to step up to the plate and win bids and buy some things. So yet again, what I'm seeing in the first quarter is if you're from, you know, a couple, you know, a small deal, a half a million EBITDA up to three or four million dollars of EBITDA, there are plenty of people that want to you know, be buyers and want to buy your organization. And I don't really see that particular segment of the market being affected. What I do see, though, is some of the large transactions are sort of in a holding pattern. There's even been some talk of some of the really, really big DSOs maybe doing some things like IPOs or going public or doing SPACs. You know, I, I don't really hear a lot of those rumors right now. I think that that stuff, you know, is probably going to be put on the back burner for another year or so to sort of see how the market sort of plays out. Because when you do something like that, you do an IPO, you want to have maximum value. You don't want to have it fizzle. So I don't know that you're going to right now see some massive things like a SPAC or an IPO. You may not see a billion dollar transaction in the next quarter or so. But for the regular, what I call just bread and butter of the industry because there's thousands and thousands of organizations with EBITDA from a half a million to a couple million. I think you're going to see pretty strong M&A activity. And that's what I'm seeing right now. I, I would completely concur with that because we have been talking about um, that level of activity going into this period of economic uncertainty. We've been talking about that ad nauseum for the, about the last 90 days and really advocating that um, a lot of the groups that we work with in a consulting manner, at least, uh, secure dry powder and, and have the ability to make some of their own acquisitions in, in a period of uncertainty. So I think what you're talking about, you know, three to four million dollars and, and, and lower is completely appropriate. And, and this is a context or this is a, a situation where the entire industry isn't just driven from the top. I mean, there are, there's a lot of value to be gained. This is a prime opportunity for entrepreneurs who are building group practices and their pre-private equity um, to, to really uh, go through their own phase of consolidation in a local marketplace. And I think there's there's tons of value to be created and the, the multiples hold up to that and, and really they can create a lot of equity on balance sheet at a rapid rate. So we're seeing that all the way down in terms of the, the people we're working with who are in the build phase. You know, Steve, you, like I say, you, you do a lot with our clients in terms of, you know, helping when they establish a regulatory compliant DS. So getting the financial reporting structures in place and cost center accounting and, and you know, all that sort of uh, financial reporting. You, do you want to maybe slice and dice that a little bit as to what you're seeing in 2023, not just from a sell side standpoint, but also from a um, you know, a growth phase, if, if I'm saying that correctly? Yeah. I mean, look, there are a lot of, there's lots of opportunity for uh, practices, you know, these, you know, smaller group practices, you know, call it five to, you know, 25 offices um, that are, you know, able to create, you know, infrastructure that have developed that and, uh, you know, use, you know, analytics and data in order to really effectively manage a practice. Um, and, and then also, you know, that kind of tells a greater story for recruitment, right? I spoke about recruitment before. I kind of view that as maybe one of the largest challenges that practices have for growth. You know, a lot of times they're looking to, you know, acquire or build more offices, you know, and, and that's a good thing, of course. But the other thing that's often overlooked is, well, hey, I have this pipeline. I have these offices. How do I kind of generate more dollars through my existing offices, and you know, many times that it can be a marketing initiative, um, but you know, more often than not, I find is, hey, you know, I don't have, have a, you know, I don't have a doctor in order to perform it, you know, to treat the patients. And so, by being able to have, you know, have that infrastructure, be able to tell a greater story, offer, you know, uh, you know, a big thing that you guys are involved in is, uh, you know, uh, creating some sort of, you know, restrictive stock, you know, 
unit kind of plan or some sort of, you know, phantom equity and, you know, being able to have that in place and having that level of sophistication uh, kind of gives you a greater ability to attract, you know, quality people and to kind of really grow your enterprise. And, you know, the other thing that I would say, uh, which happens, you know, all the time, I think, in, you know, you know, taking the, the entire cross, uh, cross with, of or bandwidth of industries is the when, when times are tenuous, the strong always get stronger uh, because they you know they have the financial capital in order to make investments. You know, hire the people that they you know maybe couldn't get because they weren't available, and take advantage of certain of economies of scale, and are, are willing to take more risk because they have the ability to kind of withstand that difficulty. On the other hand, um, you know you have other practices that were kind of stretched to the limits. You know, uh, and they're, you know, they're expanding, you know, they're doing it, uh, you know, with as much credit as they can. They're running into some credit limitations. Interest rates are starting to go up. That starts to eat into your bottom line. You know, as Brian spoke about earlier, we are dealing with inflationary aspects that cuts into your bottom line. And those those folks, you know, depending upon, you know, where things shake out over the next year and none of us have a crystal ball as to what the future holds in terms of interest recession, things like that. We're all hoping that this is just a blip um, and that maybe it never even impacts dentistry. But those guys may have some difficulty, but then, you know, there'll be opportunities for other people to take advantage of those, you know, situations. Yeah, very well said. And and I would agree with you on the, you know, the biggest problem of group practices, whether you're a thousand locations or, or five locations, is attracting and retaining uh, quality associates. And we're we're big believers, obviously, in associate equity models. And that, I mean, you mentioned restricted Well, yeah, I mean, Perrin, it's not just the associates. I mean, yes, you guys have a, you know, some really good ideas when it comes to associates. I know you've led the way with that, but I just want to point out, it's the labor market in general. It's front desk people. It's everybody that works in a dental office. You know, you're struggling to attract and retain talent. And then, of course, of <laughs> course, associates on top of it. Yep. Yeah, I, I and I think that you see it in clinical staff, you see it in administrative staff, uh, and, and I, you know, I think the the wage press pressure only exacerbates the problem. And we've had a, you know, if you follow, and I'm sure you guys do, a lot of the uh, the trends as it relates to employment overall. I mean, there's been a massive exodus of of the tail end of the baby boomer generation just outright retiring and not coming back. So we the the labor force participation rate is down you know, uh, to, to make that problem any, uh, all the worse, I would say, uh, in a group practice context. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about, let's go back to the world of M&A. Um, and let's, let's talk through maybe, um, what y'all saw in, in 22 and just some general philosophies or, or guidance that you might give around LOIs. Um, you can keep this at a high level. Uh, L- LOI is, is letter of intent, obviously. Um, this is a, a an aspect that we track pretty highly here at Polaris. And, and I'll set the context of the question just briefly, as briefly as I can. And that is that um, we, we do our best to create reality for our clients and and govern their expectations accordingly so it's very important to us um, to to give a sell side client the confidence that the number that we say that we think the trade would go off at uh, based on our experience that we don't give them false hope or or, or create a letdown scenario um, where they they feel like they have to capitulate just to take a deal in the end and you know, we track the the performance, our closing performance against initial LOIs, and we're about 98% of that number. And it's a number we're pretty proud of. And then this, these are transactions with a weighted average multiple of about um, nine and a half times EBITDA. So these are not small transactions. They're they're for us at least they're fairly substantial, um, and they can be some pretty large deals. So I think um, you know the the issues we run into around letters of intent um, can be uh, substantial and, and if uh, put incorrectly, you know, can really create some heartache on on behalf of the client. Can you two guys maybe just, you know, take a pass at what y'all see in in terms of letters of intent and the thing and the aspects of it that are that make for successful transactions and a successful process for both sides, sell side and buy side. 
um, and, and do a little bit of education for our audience around that. Brian, again, I'll, I'll let you take the lead on this one. Well, Perrin, you know, a day doesn't go by. I'm going to try to do this in like two or three minutes because, you know, I literally lecture for hours on this sometimes at workshops and we, you know, we don't have time for this today. But but um, a day doesn't go by that I don't get a question from a client or somebody about an LOI. So let me try to do this real, you know, as quick as I can to just sort of give some general guidance, you know. LOIs, there's no uniform. I wish somebody would come up with a uniform, like, you know, uniform LOI template or form. There's none. They vary greatly across the industry. Some are exceedingly detailed, some are exceedingly general, and some are everything in between. The, the rules of the road on an LOI are, you know, it should contain the material terms, you know, the price. It should contain, you know, if there's an employment agreement, what the period of employment is going to look like, if there's a rollover interest, what the rollover is, and any other key terms like non-competes or tax, you know, structures or things. Um, that's what I think it should do. Uh, very often they don't. The rules of the LOI is if it's in the LOI, then it's a little bit sort of improper to try to renegotiate it later. Not that it doesn't happen. It does happen. But generally, it's sort of improper to try to renegotiate it if it's in the LOI. But here's the thing. If it's not in the LOI, then it's fair game to be renegotiated later. And that's where I see like a lot of problems come up. I'll see a highly general LOI, and there might be four or five key terms in there. And nobody really wants to renegotiate those terms, but there might be, you know, a hundred terms that we need to make the deal happen. And there's like five or six of them set forth in the LOI. And now we find ourselves negotiating the other 94 terms. And it could end up being, you know, wide variants of, you know, the buyer thought it would be ABC and the seller thought it would be XYZ and they're miles apart and it creates problems. So if you're listening to this and you're saying, okay, how, how do I make sense of this mess? This is what I'll say to you. What really needs to be in the LOI, certainly the price needs to be in the LOI. Certainly if there's any type of unique tax treatment that one party needs, that should be spelled out in the LOI. Certainly, if there's an employment term, if it's five years, three years, that should be spelled out. If there's going to be a non-compete, that should be spelled out. If there's going to be um, a rollover interest, like you're getting 60% cash at closing, but 40% is rolled over, that needs to be spelled out. And then, you know, here's the thing where sometimes people get into trouble and maybe it, it would serve everybody if we were a little more detailed in LOIs is what happens if one party wants to retire prematurely or not serve out their employment agreement because there's such a wide variance. Some uh, buyers will say you forfeit everything. I've seen that. Others will say they can buy back your rollover at a discount. Others have other sort of penalty provisions in there. And I do see a wide sort of variance and a lot of misunderstandings occur late in the process as to what happens. I mean, it could be, you know, certainly people understand, parent, if you just walk the deal, if you're like a 50-year-old dentist and you just say, I'm tired of this and I'm walking out the door, you know, somebody might say, okay, well then, you know, you're going to have to pay a penalty. But what if you become disabled? What if you get into a car accident or what if, you know, you have a health condition or something, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome and you can't do chair side work anymore or something, you know, a lot of thought needs to go into what happens if you can't serve out your employment term. And there's a wide variance of penalties for that. And I think the, the more that can be spelled out out in the LOI so there's no misunderstanding later, the better off everybody will be than getting further down a transaction and having to dicker over those sort of terms. Yeah, I, you know, uh, great insight, obviously. And, and I figured you could uh, could teach a course on this, um, but I appreciate you, you know, encapsulating and bookending it as, as well as you do, Brian. You, you mentioned non-competes um, and, you know, obviously sort of hot off the presses of the last what two weeks i think yeah that's Lena not going anywhere that's going to be caught <laughs> up in legal time yeah i shouldn't cut you off you're talking about the proposed ftc rule from the biden administration to ban all non-competes I, I guess two things on that i'm glad you mentioned it because you know we should talk about it because it's new one it's going to be caught up in legal challenges for years so if you're trying to do a deal now this year or next year it's going to be inapplicable to you and then number two this is something that i I, I'm glad you highlighted this. Everybody should know this. There are two standards for non-competes. There's a standard where you hire an associate. You don't pay that 
associate any money, but they work for you and they've got a non-compete if they leave. These are employment-related non-competes. And then there's non-competes in the sale of a business. Just so you know, the FTC rule is unlikely to cover the sale of a business because everybody, even the state of California, where everybody says, oh, there's no non-competes. Yes, there is. There's non-competes for the sale of a business. If somebody pays you millions of dollars, they have a right for a period of time to prevent you from competing. And almost nobody whether it's the Biden administration, the state of California, regulators, everybody seems to recognize if you get paid millions of dollars, you have a right to take somebody out of competition for a little bit. Where the big disagreements happen is not where you've sold a business, but you're just trying to prevent somebody from competing in an employment agreement. And that's the thing that I think there'll be legal challenges for a while, but ultimately that's the one where it's subject potentially to having some rules saying you can't, you know, tell people they can't compete. But I feel like in the sale of a business, there will always be enforceable non-competes because you can't do it any other way. You're paying millions or billions of dollars in some cases to people. You can't have them go across the street on day one and start competing against you. And I think almost everybody recognizes that. Yeah, we we end up uh, having to dissect that um, on in, in, through our associate equity model, our partnership pathways service, where you know in, to your point, employees and owners are looked at differently around that um, due to trade secrets, the secret sauce of a business, and everything like that, and and, and appropriately so. So, um, Steve, bouncing back to you, just kind of rounding out. Uh, LOIs, Q of E's, uh, things that you see uh, in that um, sort of uh, due diligence and closing process and any any guidance that you'd like to share along that? Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> so a couple of things that, you know, you know, I wanted to address that Brian uh, kind of went through. One is, um, you know, within the LOI, you know, you know, part of and we've talked about this before on a prior podcast, you know, is it, you know, are you better off doing a kind of broad based one so that you gain momentum and try to move closer to a deal? Or do you do a detailed LOI that, you know, which would be my preference, by the way. And I think, you know, based on what Brian said, I think I don't want to speak for him, but it sounds like he would prefer that as well as more of a granular detailed one. Um, a couple of uh, key items that I think need to go in the LOI, um, in addition to all the things that Brian mentioned was, hey, when are we closing? <laughs> you know, what's the date of the closing date? And, you know, what the does that mean in terms of exit? If you know, we we were part of a deal um, that uh, actually Brian was too, um, uh, where there was a deal that just kept dragged on, kept getting, and you were not part of it, by the way, Aaron, <laughs> to your credit. So uh, where it kept getting dragged on and on and on and on, and ultimately, you know, the 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 prospective buyer didn't have the. Uh, I don't. Th I think it was more of a capital issue for them where they couldn't get the financing, and so our client unfortunately is you know going back into the marketplace to kind of find a new uh, a new uh, buyer. Um, so that would be one thing. Uh, the other thing um, that I, I think would be important to in, you know incorporate into an LOI is if there is rollover equity, you know what level of you know where do you share in that? Are you sharing? In terms of uh, you know what is your exit on that? Do you share at the same multiple that the you know the DSO is actually selling at, or are you going to be sharing at a lower multiple because of some sort of constrained thing? And uh, you know, and uh, will there be drag along, tag along rights, and all of those other things that, of course, you know, absolutely will get you know reflected in the agreement, the ultimate you know agreement in terms of the you know the APA. But again, if you can spell those things out, like Brian said earlier. Um, you know, to make sure that there's no uncertainty, there's no question, less things to negotiate later on. I think that's always helpful. Um, you know, one of the other things just in terms of, you know, bringing something from LOI to con contract to ultimate closing. Uh, one of the things that is spoken about a lot is determining what the targeted working capital is. You know, what is it that you'll be delivering in terms of receivables and prepayments minus, you know, your obligations. And that typically, um, the way that gets uh, calculated is, you know, they'll do a run rate in terms of a practice, how it's been doing and what t their typical working capital is and, you know, making sure that that's kind of delivered at closing. And that's probably another thing that will be a closing issue um, in addition to your normal prorations, you know, like when you close and things like that. But yeah, so I think those are, uh, you know, the big things. And like I said, you know, for me, my own personal preference, uh, you know, I don't like 
prizes. I don't think Brian does. I don't think anybody does for that matter. And so the more you could spell out earlier, yes, it might slow down the process of, you know, getting a deal done because you get kind of, you know, boggled, bogged down in some of these details. But I think it's better to spell it out earlier than rather than later. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, no question, Perrin and Steve, I, I agree. It's better to spell it out earlier than later. But, you know, the reality sometimes are people got to move fast. They got to mm-hmm. do things. Sometimes a buyer might move on if you don't lock them down. So you got to look at the individual situation and, and make the best decision you can. You know, but I would be lying on this you know, show if I said there weren't situations where, you know, despite my preference, we have to go with a general LOI. Sometimes we just have to because the time constraints of a particular deal doesn't allow, you know, for anything else, particularly near year end. But all things equal, I absolutely would like a more detailed LOI. Yep. Good, good stuff, guys. Um, so let's let's sort of take it off the um the transaction process and, and due diligence phase, if you will, and and maybe go back to uh, a high level here. I mean, we're it, very optimistic, I'll say, or bullish to a degree about uh, dentistry in general uh, being an attractive space for growth, um, for value creation, uh, and and just the trends around consolidation being very beneficial uh, top to bottom. I wonder from both of your perspectives, what your outlook is um, for the the profession of dentistry and and kind of the phase that we're in right now. And Steve, I might let you take the lead on this one since I've given Brian uh, uh, first pass at most of them. What's uh, what's your take on on the space overall in terms of where we are and what you're what you're thinking about for the future? Yeah, no, I think it, it, it's really a quite exciting uh, time to be in, in dentistry. You know, uh, the level of sophistication uh, that exists now in terms of Managing, you know, an enterprise is now kind of made its way into this space, and people will be able are able to look at things more critically. Um, one of the things that I think, you know, uh, in terms of opportunities, we talked about the recruitment opportunity that uh, you know will be there, uh, especially you know, you know, with your help in terms of Polaris's, uh, you know, implementing some incentive plans for uh, that you know practices can take advantage of. The other thing that I see is an opportunity right now, especially for, you know, large, you know, or group practices, I won't say large, but group practices that operate within a suburban area um, where they can kind of control the the marketplace and, you know, being able to provide, you know, care to their, to the, you know, the patients um, and the, and from the insurance companies, right? They're, uh, you know, they're folks there. And, you know, I see the opportunity there to move maybe renegotiate, you know, in, in light of all of the inflation that has happened, right, it's from a payroll, from a cost point of view, uh, you know, supply kind of point of view, opportunities to renegotiate your third-party payer rates. I think that might be a, a real good thing to do. And so I, I'm very bullish on the industry. I think, you know, look, people are, you know, you know, there's, you know, Brian talks about, you know, in his annual conference, you know, how things have changed in terms of the marketplace. And, uh, you know, so I see it as a really great opportunity for people to make a lot of money, you know, and, and again, adding the sophistication, being able to manage metrics, understanding performance by location, you know, having good details, having a good accountant, um, you know, things like that, I think, you know, really help, you know, manage you know, things for a very profitable outcome. Agreed across the board. Brian, uh, from your lens, uh, Dentistry is still an attractive space, <laughs> I think, for. Well, for yeah, you I mean, for- it's always important, Perrin, that we separate the M&A markets from the core business of dentistry. You know, when I when I give my lectures often and that now I'm teaching dental school, you know, also I'm teaching dental students the business of dentistry. It's important we separate. I say there's two components of, you know, the market. There's the core business of dentistry, like patients going to the dentist and doing procedures and earning revenue in dental practices. That's been virtually recession-proof. It proved to be pandemic-proof. That's very strong, very exciting. If any Anybody listening here wants to go be a hygienist or a dentist or a professional in the industry, I'd say you you picked a great profession and it's going to be strong for a long, long, long time, maybe forever. So, you know, absolutely. 
But then we have, due to the great evolution and consolidation of the industry, we have the DSO M&A markets and this idea that practices at an unprecedented rate are consolidating and becoming affiliated with DSOs and then DSOs are selling to other DSOs and private equity groups. It's two separate animals. And it's true that the core business of dentistry drives the whole thing, but it's two separate animals. I think if you're running a dental office and you're a dentist or an associate dentist or a hygienist or a professional, you got a lot to look forward to. It's going to be a good year this year, even with the recession. Everything looks strong. You know, I do think there may be a blip in these M&A markets. I do think if your goal was you were going to acquire 20 practices this year, roll this up and sell it and get a big double digit multiple of EBITDA, you know, long term, that's a great play and you're going to be fine. But are you going to be able to necessarily do that in 2023 while we're in this inflationary recessionary period? I'm not sure. There may be a pause button on some of that. You pointed out, I think, Perrin, uh, maybe it was before we even got on this call that we were talking about some DSOs, laying, big DSOs laying off employees or laying off staff or doing reductions. Yeah, I mean, there may be some short-term pain this year in terms of that stuff, but I don't think we should ever, you know, conflate or mix up, you know, the M&A DSO business with the core business of dentistry. The core business of dentistry is strong. It's going to be strong. It's going to be strong this year. But there may be some short-term blips in the big DSO M&A machine this year, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep, absolutely does. And it could also, it goes without saying that, you know, sometimes layoffs uh, at an enterprise level can be um, uh, impactful and beneficial to those uh, smaller groups looking to add talent at a leadership level. So um, there, there is that type of uh, opportunity, again, if you have your powder dry. Let's, um, let's talk a, a little bit about um, sell-side advisory and maybe those looking to potentially exit in 2023 or, or shortly thereafter. You Both of y'all get a, um, I guess it's a, the, the privilege and the burden of working with a variety of uh, advisors in the space. And much like any other profession, there are those that are high quality and maybe some that are less so. And and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind, again, not naming names, but uh, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind like giving our audience some general characteristics of what to look for in an advisor to take them through a marketed sales process and, you know, kind of what you've seen in terms of the the be- the best qualities of the best advisors that you've worked with um, uh, in, in your time in the space. Brian, I'll, I'll let you take the lead on this one. Yeah, you know, there was a term, maybe I'm getting a little older and old fashioned because I, I don't hear this term in use. I know Steve is old enough to understand this. <laughs> remember, Steve, the term poser? Do you remember the yeah, term? Oh, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah, I, certainly I know do. you do. Today, I don't know if the younger people, we don't, it's out of fashion. But basically, <laughs> there used to be people that, and still is today, no matter what terms you want to use, there's people that are the real deal that actually know what they're doing and are going to add value. And then the term that I grew up on was called posers, people that pretend that they know what they're doing, but when you drill down, they really don't know what they're doing. And that, unfortunately, is where we find ourselves. You know, there are some uh, advisors or purported advisors that are going to do little more than maybe make a couple introductions and charge you a commission at the end. And I, I just don't recommend that. And then there are advisors that actually will sit down and, and I'll give you some characteristics. And I'll name at least one name. I consider you guys uh, at Polaris among you know the better advisors in the space. So I will break the rule. I'll name a name there. But <laughs> nevertheless, um, what a real bona fide advisor is going to do is they're going to sit down with you. They're going to figure out if you even need to sell. I know, Perrin, you sometimes tell people, hey, the time's not right to sell. we got to build up the EBITDA and we're going to wait a year. So that's the first thing. They have the capability to look at your practice and, or your organization and even see if it's right to sell or if there's another strategy to deploy first before you sell. That's first of all. Second, they're going to help you calculate your EBITDA. And they're going to defend your EBITDA, right? Well, if, if the buyer walks up, if you think your EBITDA is a million dollars and the buyer says it's 600000 they may get somebody like Steve involved, but they're going to defend your EBITDA and they're going to say, we disagree. You know, We're going to fight for the value of this organization. They're going to make recommendations to you as to things you can do to increase your EBITDA in advance of a sale or increase the value of your organization. 
This is what a real bona fide advisor does versus somebody that just gets you to sign a contract, makes introductions and stands back waiting for their commission. And I feel very, very strongly that anybody listening to this, if you want to sell your organization, you need to get a bona fide advisor not somebody that just makes introductions and wants to get a commission. I feel very, very strongly about that. Uh, thank you for the plug, the checks in the mail. Um, we, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, Steve, uh, from, from your lens, um, some of the, the positive characteristics and traits that, that you've had the privilege of the people you've worked with. Yeah, and, and certainly led to Brian's point, you, you folks are you know, right up there. You know, like for me, you know, you know, one is we want somebody, you know, for our clients that are going to look out for them and that it's not just about, hey, let me see if I can get a deal done at any price. But, you know, what's best for you? And is it do we do it now or do we set things up uh, for some time in the future um, where you're in a better position to take advantage of things? Uh, you know, I, I also think it's important, you know, to align yourself with somebody that's done it before. You know, you don't want, you know, to Brian's point earlier about the poser's, you know, statement that it's a generational comment for, for our generation, maybe for, not for some of the listeners out there. And, and I'm sure there are, you know, given, uh, you know, baby boomer type stuff, there, there, it is for the listeners there as well. But, you know, someone that's done it before has done bigger deals also because, you know, having that ability to understand what, you know, more sophisticated uh, sales techniques, structuring techniques, you know, that's all part of it. I, I also think, you know, having somebody that is uh, communicative and collaborative are also, you know, important characteristics so that, you know, one day you're not, you know, you know, get a phone call, say, hey, sorry, the deal is, you know, deal didn't, you know, work out. You know, they've been having problems all along. Well, why the hell didn't you tell me that there was an issue that we can kind of maybe have explored together and not keeping me in the dark? I want to as a as a as a seller. Uh, you know, I want to know every step of the way where things stand and, you know, how things are going and what, you know, maybe I can answer a question or add some color to something. And I think it's also very important for, you know, the advisor to work in conjunction and be collaborative with their professionals, lawyers like Brian or accountants like us, so that we're all working together as a team rather than somebody trying to, you know, maybe isolate somebody because they want to play hero and or control the narrative. So these are all things that I, you know, I think are important. And I guess last thing is, you know, you know, our approach and, you know, you can tell by the, you know, Brian's tone as well. It's look, hey, we want to, we want you to be successful. And we want you to have a positive outcome, but we're not going to just tell you what we, what you want to hear. We're going to tell you what we really think, because the reality is the other side's going to figure it out anyway. So who are we fooling here? Right? Like, let's be, you know, let's put our cards on the table. Let's present the best possible uh, position for our organization, meaning the seller, and you know how we can best you know advocate for your position. But you know we're not going to just tell you things you want to hear because that's what you know that will that's what's going to get you to sign the paper with us, and then we'll worry about it later. I don't think that's you know that's that creates an opportunity for a successful relationship. Having that what I call a negative dynamic, just getting your signature, and then let's see where it goes. That's that's a really. Uh... A, a really um, important point that you can't stress enough, because I think, um, you know, when you think about the role of an advisor, um, a lot of sell side advisors, M&A advisory companies, when when that's all they do, uh, at some level, it does become a little bit of a numbers play. I mean, they may try to enlist a, a number of clients knowing that they're not going to close a transaction with all of them. So it's kind of the hedging of the bets type of a scenario. And, and we, you know, we don't take that approach and we don't have to take that approach. And a lot of that is because we have a consulting piece of our business that is, you know, almost equal to the the sell side advisory uh, standpoint in terms of revenue. So, you know, if a client isn't the right fit for us, we're not, we don't feel like we have to take them on in, in order to make our payroll. You know, I mean, it's the, the clients we take on are ones we know we've vetted, we've, we've spent a lot of time with, and we feel confident that we can create a successful outcome for them. And if something were to happen along the way where, you know, the deal doesn't materialize or, or there's, there's a, a deal breaking issue or, or something, the fact that we have another completely different aspect of our business um, that we can fall back on doesn't put any pressure on us to to give the client any guidance that would be self-serving to our interests first above theirs. And, and I think that's 
that's really critically important in some of the horror stories we hear. Um, uh, you kind of wonder how people get themselves in that situation to begin with. So I appreciate the, the kind words on, on behalf of DeWalker and myself and the, the business we're trying to build here for sure. So guys, let's, uh, let's put a, a bow on today's uh, uh, discussion um, by uh, a little bit of 2023 and beyond outlook. Any bold predictions and prognostications for the future after we kind of, you know, muddle through some of this uncertainty, but you know, maybe some some outlook from the two of y'all for our audience at a, a little bit wider range here. Brian, you want to you want to take first crack at that? Yeah, I, I think 2023 is going to be a good year. I, I don't think it's going to be like an explosive, you know, record year, but I think it's going to be a good year. And I think if um, you know you're a solo or a group practice and you want to sell this year, and you ordinarily could sell, meaning there's nothing wrong with your organization that in any environment would be a problem, you can sell this year. There'll be plenty of you know demand for that. I think there will be some folks that hold off. I, I, this is not 2021 where everybody had to get their deal done by the end of December, or there'd be some tax increase or something. I, you know, some people will hold off. I think some bigger deals will hold off. I think there will be, you know, some layoffs and some things at certain organizations. But I think there is such an incredible demand for labor in this market that I think if you're laid off, you're going to have a job in a week going somewhere else because, you know, one bigger organization's loss is a smaller or middle market organization's gain. So I, I think it's, you know, I, I think dentistry is going to is going to remain very, very strong this year. There's going to be a lot of opportunities. It's just going to be, Perrin, just a little quieter than what we've kind of gotten used to. But I'll, I'll tell you this before we wrap up. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not going to talk about not naming names. I had a couple attorneys that I went by and they were like literally reduced to tears in 2021. Um, because the workload was just so overwhelming up all night doing deal after deal. So you know, maybe we all could benefit from a busy but quieter deal you know, flow than just that crazy stuff that we got accustomed to in you know, 20 and 21. I mean, those would be my thoughts. But I think on the, on the whole, 2023 is going to be a good year. I don't think there's going to be a lot to really complain about, but it's probably not going to be an explosive record year. Man, isn't that the truth? And and hopefully for all of our collective sanity that, you know, 2021 was, was I guess, a great year in a lot of ways. But the the demands that it put on everybody um, to, to make that happen were a bit extreme. Uh, and I think if people are, are judging 2023 by the 2021 standard, that's that's not appropriate. I tend to think back to what the, the industry looked like pre-COVID, honestly. And I think we're we're still in some of that same context in terms of volume multiples and, and, and otherwise. Steve, uh, concluding thoughts from your end, bull predictions, prognostications for the future, what you're thinking? Yeah, no, I think, you know, to Brian's point, I think, you know, things will be fine in 23. I think, uh, you know, for some of the uh, PE back DSOs that uh, maybe weren't as successful as, you know, creating uh, value to the affiliated practices that they acquired, and they were more or less looking to, you know, buy at, you know, five or six and sell at 10 or 11. Um, and they weren't able to kind of incorporate, you know, the savings and the efficiencies. And they're running into, you know, some credit issues, whether it's uh, their, you know, their lenders or investors are saying, hey, look, you know, you haven't, uh, you know, demonstrated the profitability. Well, those folks might have some, you know, maybe heading into some strong headwinds, I think. And, you know, that might be an opportunity for, you know, maybe a, a more nimble and uh, strategic DSO to take the over you might find some of that again at the at the pe level not necessarily at the you know the small guy you know investor kind of group where they're doing acquisitions and things like that but i yeah i think you know look we don't know what the future holds as we said you know if this my own gut and i'm not an economist <laughs> is that i think this recession will be short um i would tend to think that interest rates that although they've doubled in the last six months or nine months or whatever the case may be I'm hoping that that will kind of 
work its way out over the next 12 months and then things will kind of come down a little bit and i think you know the long-term prognosis is things are going to be really healthy and uh, and profitable for a lot of people excellent very positive uh, outlook from both of you and a, a great place to leave it Brian Kaleo, Steve Mizrak, y'all are great friends of ours, and you have been for a number of years, and our audience is better for, for your guidance and your time today, and I know you're, you're both busy, and, and Steve, being on vacation, you're a, uh, a true gentleman to, to make the time for us. I can't thank you enough on behalf of the Polaris team, uh, as well as our entire audience for joining me today, so thanks so much, guys. Um, safe travels to both of you. Look forward to seeing you very soon. And thanks again for being on the show today. Thanks, Perrin. Thank you, Perrin. It's an absolute pleasure as always. And looking forward to the next one, maybe with a cocktail in hand. You never know. So. <laughs> there we go. All right. That's right. Awesome. That, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful, guys. And thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, in the audience today. I know that you got a lot out of uh, today's episode. And again, we thank Brian and Steve for joining us. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Once again, our sincere thanks to Steve Mizrak of Dorfman, Mizrak and Thaler and Brian Kaleo of the Dykema Law Firm for joining me on the show today. Those two guys are are great. I mean, what y'all heard of them uh, in audio is every bit the same as who they are and, and what they do on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. They're about as genuine and, and well-informed as as there are two people in our industry. So um, I really appreciate them uh, joining me on the show, sharing their information and their, their experience with y'all. And I really do appreciate the work they do for so many of our clients. Um, they are uh, top shelf for sure. Before we conclude today's show, I just want to take a, a quick second on two things. One, um, a number of y'all have reached out on exit process and an exit planning day uh, with me and or DeWalker to talk about options and, and outlook for your business. Uh, and those are, are very beneficial and they're, they're kind of fun too because you know, there's nothing definitive and and it's really kind of open-ended. And I, I think there's some people who are moving forward with an exit process this year and others who have taken a second look and maybe recalibrated. And we gave them some insight into their business that they need to to double down on and, and retool for about the next year or two before they go to, to market to create the outcome that they want. So those are, are very beneficial conversations. And like I say, we host clients on a one-on-one day. That's not a it's not a group class. I mean, I, selling a business is a really emotional journey and it's a very personal decision. And, you know, I think our opinion really is that if you want to dig deep into the nuts and bolts of it and what's in it for you, a group context is probably a group class context is probably not the right way to do that. So those one-on-one day sessions uh, with either me or DeWalker, um, or both of us occasionally um, can be scheduled any day of the week that's convenient for you to come to, to Charlotte and spend a day for us. So I encourage you to think about that. If if exit is in your uh, thought process for uh, 2023 or or probably, frankly, even 2024 or five for that matter. The other thing I wanted to, to put on your radar is that we are putting some of the finishing touches on some of the planning phase for a conference we're going to be hosting in Fort Lauderdale May 10th through 12th, and it's going to be called Building Your Enterprise Platform. Many of you uh, attended or remember um, the Scaling from Clinician to CEO conference we did with Dr. Mark Costas and the Dental Success Institute back in Denver in October. Great conference, tons of fun, all new content, and and the net promoter scores we got on that thing were tremendous. I think they were like 9.82 or something like that. So obviously the information was very well received from the audience. This uh, conference in May, May 10th through 12th in Fort Lauderdale um, called Building Your Enterprise Platform is is really going to be focused more on those that are around five locations up to 20, 30, 50 locations. And it's about centralization, really building a back office, uh, scaling a business, um, acquiring and integrating uh, practices, uh, the value of equity, uh, scaling culture and some of those types of aspects. So a different kind of 
target audience, if you will, from the one that was probably with us in Denver. Uh, and these are, are those that uh, don't want to stop at four or five or six locations, but really are more interested in, in you know, building a business that's going to go from three or four or five locations to probably 15 to 20. Um, it is going to be a, a great conference. You're going to get a lot more information coming out. But as you all listen to the uh, podcast, I just wanted to get it on your uh, collective radars uh, so that you could start maybe blocking some days off in your schedule if you'd like to join us. So um, there may be, <laughs> not sure yet, there may be a link in the show notes uh, to download further information or, or get your name uh, on the list for registration and everything. So hope to see many of you there. Again, we really appreciate all the great feedback we get from the podcast uh, and all of the content-based work that we do and really are, are grateful from uh, at the bottom of our hearts to so many of you who refer the podcast, send it out to your friends. We see the download numbers going up uh, on a monthly basis, and it's it's really great to see. So please do continue to share the episodes and, and share the show uh, with your colleagues. And if you have questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can always reach me via email at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.